this is the Q Podcast show, a show about ideas, innovations, and thinkers. Welcome, everyone. My name is Sri Krishnamurti. I am the CEO and founder of Quant University, and I'll be the host of the show. So we're kicking off this podcast with the Quant University speaker series. We will have 10 weeks of speakers, quants, thinkers, innovators, who are all challenged to innovate in these turbulent times of COVID-19. In the first episode, we'll have Dr. Reha Tutanku from Point72 talk about various practical issues with asset management. So let's get going. Welcome, everyone. Uh, this is the first lecture in the Q speaker series. Uh, my name is Sri Krishnamurti, and I'm going to be the host for today. Uh, we are very pleased to have Dr. Reha Tutunku uh, from Point72 today. And uh, uh, in the next hour or so, we're going to have uh, a quick introduction and we are going to talk about some of the practical issues on asset management. And then uh, we'll have a fireside chat with Reha, and I would love to get his views on. You know, how he's seeing uh, the investment environment today. Obviously, this is not investment advice, but uh, how, how he sees uh, the whole aspect about, you know, with COVID-19 and how we are seeing the world in today's day and age. And also some advice on uh, how do we think about careers? How do we think about upskilling ourselves? And how do we uh, make sure that we are prepared as we come out of this crisis? I hope you're all safe. And I know uh, when I looked at the registrations, we had people from all over the world. So I welcome you all to uh, the launch of the, the Quant University Summer School. So we have uh, eight weeks of classes we are doing in partnerships with uh, Premier. And um, for people who do not know us, uh, Quant University is a Boston-based uh, advisory. Uh, so we started out in 2013, and uh, we have focused primarily on the intersection of data science, machine learning, and quantitative finance. Uh, we have had many programs, and we have uh, uh, focused primarily uh, in upskilling quants and data scientists with the latest and various technologies like machine learning and artificial intelligence. Uh, so uh, in the past uh, six to seven years or so, we have done many corporate programs, but in the last few years, we've expanded it into a lot of B2C programs and we've been doing a lot of online programs. And um, we just had our first cohort of the machine learning and uh, finance course, which we did in partnership with Premier. And uh, we are launching the summer school and we have three courses for uh, people who are new to uh, quantitative finance and also for uh, in the context of uh, programming with uh, uh, Python and machine learning. So we have a course which uh, you know, gives them a quick introduction to Python for data science. And we have a eight week course on machine learning and AI uh, for financial professionals, which is being uh, done in partnership with Premier. And we also have another course uh, primarily focused on model risk management. And so if you're interested in hearing about any of these courses, please go to our website, mm -hmm. uh, mlinfinance.splashthat.com. Mm -hmm. So uh, with, without further ado, I would like to give you the agenda for today. Uh, for, the, for the next 30 to 40 minutes or so, we would love to hear from Reha on uh, the various practical issues we are seeing with respect to asset management. And then we're gonna have a fireside chat and a quick question and answer session. Uh, Dr. Rehaud uh, Tudunku uh, is a portfolio construction lead at Point72 Asset Management. 
Uh, prior to that, he has held positions at Secor uh, Asset Management and also at AQR and Goldman Sachs. Uh, prior to that, he was also a professor at uh, Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, I came across Reha's work. Um, so this was uh, way back in 2008 when um, uh, I was uh, upskilling myself on uh, the intersection of portfolio optimization. I was at a company called MathWorks doing a lot of MATLAB programming. And I was building case studies on uh, using quantitative finance techniques, but also portfolio optimization techniques using MATLAB. And uh, many of the books at that time were primarily focused on you know, convex optimization and optimization theory, but the intersection of uh, finance and optimization wasn't uh, something which was uh, ubiquitous at that point. Uh, so what we did was uh, we were looking at uh, potential uh, uh, books and research material and I came across this wonderful book written by Reha um, and uh, that actually helped me uh, kind of get a significant knowledge and the book is in its second edition and uh, I still advise uh, you know everybody who's interested in portfolio optimization and finance to take a look at this book. Uh, we also use uh, it quite a bit for our work and also I, I, uh, I tell my students at Northeastern University to refer that book when they are interested in the intersection of finance and optimization. Um, so welcome, Reha, and it's a pleasure uh, to have you uh, at our first uh, uh, Q speaker series lecture. And uh, I'll hand over the stage to you. All right. And uh, thank you very much, Ri. And it's a really big, big pleasure to be here and to have a chance to chat, you know, with all the uh, the attendees of this uh, seminar series. Um, and thank you for that plug uh, about our book. And uh, yeah, so I think you can see the, in, in the background uh, uh, the cover of the second edition of the book, uh, which came out just last year. Uh, so we had uh, made a lot of uh, improvements in the, in the book, but uh, I already feel that, you know, uh, we need a third edition now, which uh, requires a new <laughs> chapter on, you know, uh, investing uh, through a pan pandemic or, you know, optimization during a pandemic, you know, that, that, that's a sorely lacking uh, chapter in the book, unfortunately. Um, uh, but um, also I want to uh, commend, uh, you know, the Quant University on this uh, sort of initiative, I think, in the, in the uh, world of finance. You know, it's one of the uh, it's sort of the fastest moving industries uh, in terms of both the, the products and the approaches and the, the kinds of uh, uh, sort of uh, methods that work or you know the, the, the kinds of methods that don't work so th there's a lot of uh, I think changes uh, over time in the in the industry and uh, keeping up with these changes, you know, this continuing education and uh, being aware of what's new, you know, what's uh, making a difference, what's making uh, people more impactful is important. And uh, uh, and initiatives like the, the Quant University and the courses that they offer and these opportunities that they provide through, uh, you know, these uh, lectures and seminars, uh, I think are, uh, uh, increasingly important uh, so and I'm really glad to be part of that and to be the you know the first speaker of the the summer uh, seminar series uh, so let me uh, can I take over the, the screen sharing now yes Reha you're the host so you can do a screen share All right. um, so let me 
screw this. Um, so can everybody see my uh, presentation now? Yes. All right, All right great. Uh, so as Sri mentioned, uh, you know, I'll, I decided to focus on a couple of practical issues in asset management for, for this conversation. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a quant, you know, I, uh, before uh, coming into the industry, you know, I was a math professor, so I, I, I love math, but uh, for this particular uh, presentation, I uh, decided to focus maybe a little less on math and just uh, maybe a little more on the, uh, you know, the fundamentals and the, the approaches, the sort of the thinking behind some of the, the practical issues. So I think except for one page in my presentation, there are no formulas in, in, the, in the whole uh, set of slides. Uh, but, uh, and uh, I wanted to approach uh, some of these things at a sort of more basic level than uh, maybe, you know, some of you would prefer. Uh, uh, partly because, you know, uh, throughout my career as I did uh, you know, recruiting or as I talk with people, you know, I, uh, especially with sort of, uh, you know, the people at the beginning of their careers or uh, people graduating from, you know, some of these specialized programs in computational finance or, you know, uh, financial mathematics, uh, you know, that there was really strong uh, education in terms of uh, the techniques and the methods, uh, the tool set was there, but uh, maybe sometimes uh, you know, they were not necessarily uh, supplemented with the uh, sort of the critical thinking around those kinds of methods. Uh, so I, I was hoping, uh, or my, my objective in the, in the talk is to uh, give you a little bit of that uh, sort of uh, why do we do these things in a, in a particular way and why one thing matters more than others or things like that. So uh, hopefully, uh, you know, you'll find something uh, uh, if not new, you know, uh, maybe a different way of looking at things uh, in, in the presentation. Um, so uh, the, the two topics that I'm going to cover are uh, factor investing and multi-period models. Uh, so without uh, much more uh, delay, let's get into the factor investing and, you know, what I'm planning to cover in that uh, subject. Um, so, uh, to uh, get into factor investing, let me first uh, outline, uh, you know, the main components of a quantitative asset management process. So, what, what does, uh, like, quantitative asset management uh, look like? Uh, so, uh, and we can think of it as, uh, you know, in, interrelated but uh, relatively separate steps. Uh, and uh, the first step is, uh, some sort of a, a forecasting model. So we, we want to, uh, you know, to be able to uh, have a, a successful quantitative asset management process. Uh, what we need is a good uh, model of future returns. So we want to be able to uh, forecast uh, returns as well as risks in the future uh, and then uh, incorporate them into uh, a portfolio that we manage. Uh, and this uh, step uh, is like, okay, you have a model of returns, but then uh, what are the, uh, the uh, like how are you going to actually express those uh, uh, expectations in terms of a portfolio, you know? And this becomes the question of uh, uh, like optimal portfolio construction. So there are optimization techniques and 
you know, several of the, the chapters in, in my book, for example, are focused on that aspect of quantitative asset management. So how do we go from a return model to an actual portfolio? Uh, and then there is the uh, the question of okay you uh, look, you build a model you have some forecast of the future returns now you build you turn that into uh, optimal portfolio that requires you know, you to trade uh, so then that trade needs to be executed uh, so that's another aspect of the quantitative asset as a management process that requires careful uh, planning and execution um, and uh, then the uh, the, the feedback loop. So uh, once we do all of these things, we look at the performance of the uh, the portfolios we generated, evaluate that performance, and we attribute that performance. You know, did uh, we get returns from the sources that we expected to get those returns? Uh, did they, were they in line with our expectations? Were they bigger or smaller? You know, how did they differ? Uh, trying to understand this and then. Uh, use this information to try to improve those uh, return models and to try to improve the portfolio construction and the trading processes. So, uh, and these points also uh, maybe are useful in terms of, uh, you know, planning out different sort of career paths. Uh, a lot of these teams, uh, you know, in, uh, at least in some of the larger asset management firms are, uh, you know, uh, sort of collaborating teams, but they are separate. You know, there's a research team focused on the, uh, the, the alpha research, you know, the forecasting piece. There's a portfolio construction team uh, that's, you know, responsible for building uh, the portfolios. And then there's a trading team and the attribution can be done, uh, I guess, the, the researchers or, uh, you know, different, a separate group. Uh, but there is, you know, risk management, for example, that can be a separate function. So all of these are also uh, potential avenues of uh, careers for those of you who are considering, you know, uh, the different types of roles in, in asset management. So these can all be uh, options as you look for, uh, uh, for you know, some place to uh, build your career in. Um, so let's uh, focus on the, the factor models uh, that, you know, comprise the first piece uh, from the, the previous page. Uh, so we are uh, trying to uh, build a fo forecast of uh, asset returns, and then we want to identify the one ones that are going to outperform. Uh, and the typical way this is done in these multiple factor models is to uh, decompose the, the returns into uh, two pieces. Uh, the, the first piece uh, is uh, sort of figuring out the returns that are coming from factors that are uh, prevalent throughout the market uh, and that are shared you know, across the different uh, securities. And then the second piece is uh, the set of returns that are specific to the assets or securities in our portfolio. Uh, so this uh, decomposition uh, uh, is captured uh, using a multiple factor model. Uh, and uh, there, there, there are several advantages to using a multiple factor model. So this gives us a, a thorough breakdown of return and risk. And uh, we can incorporate some economic logic. So we, when we are building the factors, we can build them on, you know, on our economic intuition. Uh, you know, there, there are already, you know, tons and tons of uh, studies that documented 
uh, you know, the re re relationship between different factors and the, you know, impact they have on the returns of securities. Uh, so we can uh, incorporate that uh, knowledge that uh, in, in, into the, uh, the models that we are building. And uh, we, uh, the multiple factor models tend to be robust to outliers because they are focusing on these uh, factors uh, in, in, in trying to explain the, uh, uh, the returns of individual securities. Uh, they adapt to macro moments because you know some of these factors will capture uh, the uh, the macro moments, and they tend to be uh, flexible, uh, tractable, uh, and intuitive. And I think this is my only uh, slide with the uh, with the math formula. So uh, just the composition, just writing it out uh, in terms of uh, a mathematical formula. So we write the return of a security in period T uh, as a summation of different components. Uh, in that formula, uh, the ex excess return of asset I uh, is represented as the sum of the returns that are coming from different factors multiplied by the exposure of that asset to that factor. Uh, so that's the, the summation term uh, you know, on the right-hand side. Uh, so we have, you know, different factors uh, indexed by K, and then uh, for each one, there is a factor return and the exposure of that asset. So the, the assets return that's coming from that exposure is going to be the product of the two, and then we sum them over the different factors. And then there is the, the second part, the specific return of the asset, you know, that's not explained by the factors or the idiosyncratic part of the return. And so this is the, you know, the fairly well-known uh, multiple factor model that people use. And in matrix form, you know, it's uh, sort of a, has a very compact representation as, you know, R equals the, uh, the exposure matrix B times the factor return uh, factor F uh, plus the, uh, the specific return factor U. Uh, so here, you know, you can see the dimensions of the, the matrices or the vectors uh, from my uh, simple formula. Um, okay, so let's start uh, discussing what a factor is. Uh, so what are the different factors that are important and how we can uh, sort of use them for return or risk estimation. Uh, a factor uh, is a characteristic of a group of securities that helps explain their returns and their risk. Um, and these can be uh, uh, reflective of the exposures uh, to systematic risks, uh, but they are not necessarily earning a persistent premium. Uh, for example, the industry membership is typically uh, a factor of this, uh, this type. So, uh, like being in a particular industry, uh, I mean, there, there are some industries where you can argue that they uh, consistently earn a premium over the, uh, uh, the rest of the industries, uh, but uh, those could be more related to uh, perhaps their beta or their riskiness, things like that. But, uh, but in general, uh, let's say, uh, there is not uh, sort of an obvious reason that uh, let's say the, the airlines should consistently outperform the, uh, the chemical companies or something like that. So in, the, in that sense, there's not a, a persistent premium to be a part of a, you know, for being part of a particular industry, 
uh, but these uh, memberships uh, help explain the risks of those uh, particular securities. So they are included typically in risk models rather than alpha models. Uh, other factors are related to risk premium. And these uh, tend to earn a, a persistent uh, risk adjusted premium over time. Uh, and uh, the, uh, so basically there is an additional risk uh, for uh, you know holding these factors uh, and you know people who hold these factors uh, expect uh, an additional return a premium for holding these factors uh, so these uh, reflect the exposure to these sources of systematic risk and it's, it's a uh, there's a return associated with it and these risk premium type of factors are very common in uh, multi-factor models and then uh, there are other factors that uh, earn a persistent premium, uh, but they are not necessarily uh, explained uh, as risk premium. Uh, so, um, and they sometimes are better explained through behavioral biases. Um, so uh, let me do a little bit of a categorization of the factors. Uh, this is uh, fairly in line with what I was already saying. So we can talk about fundamental factors uh, these are uh, based on sort of fundamental characteristics or sort of market data uh, about a, uh, about a, uh, security. So like the industry membership, for example, that I mentioned is one of these fundamental factors or the country membership in a, you know, a multi-country global portfolio. Um, uh, by the way, uh, I'm uh, doing a lot of the uh, the explanations with a very sort of equity-centric uh, perspective, uh, but a lot of the, uh, the 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 topics and the concepts that I'm talking about, you know, extend way beyond the you know the world of equity investing. So, uh, you know, there's factors uh, people think about in you know fixed income investing or in commodities investing uh, in FX. Uh, so these uh, concepts go way beyond uh, the equity world, but it's uh, sort of the most familiar setting is the equity setting. So uh, I'll, I'll stick to sort of examples from the equity setting throughout the, uh, the, the presentation, but uh, don't uh, think that these are just for uh, equities. Um, the other set of uh, uh, fundamental factors come from uh, sort of valuation metrics. Uh, these are, uh, again, in the equity setting, sort of, um, you know, based on the, uh, for example, uh, uh, fundamental data about the company, you know, the, uh, their uh, valuation, their, uh, I don't know, sales data, their, uh, uh, revenue data, things like that, uh, that impact, you know, uh, how uh, valuable that company is or that uh, particular security is. And uh, there are also additional uh, factors that we call, consider fundamental factors that are related to markets. And this is uh, more about the prices, uh, uh, the liquidity, you know, how much volume there is in that particular uh, security. Uh, uh, for example, momentum is about you know the persistence of uh, returns um, re reversal is uh, sort of in a shorter uh, time period you know the, uh, the the tendency of the the prices to uh, revert after being sort of uh, disrupted through some uh, uh, liquidity related uh, you know nudges 
market cap, you know, that determines, you know, the size of the company. So that uh, again is related to uh, this, uh, company security prices and uh, you know the number of shares uh, uh, that are outstanding, things like that. Uh, there are also sort of macroeconomic factors that uh, can be used in these multi-factor uh, models. Uh, for example, sensitivity, sensitivity to inflation is important, sensitivity to oil prices, uh, interest rates. Uh, so these are all sort of important uh, factors that you know, may impact one company more than other, and then you would want to incorporate that uh, into your uh, return models. And then uh, there are also uh, statistical factors that people use. Uh, so these come from typically something like a, a principal components analysis. So uh, in this case, you know, there's not necessarily an immediate uh, economic interpretation of the factors, uh, but uh, they uh, are reflective of the, the either the returns. Uh, you know, like if you look at them historically, so you can. Uh, look at the correlation matrix of the returns and then try to come up with the, the principal components of that uh, to use these statistical factors. Uh, so when does it start to make uh, sense to start using factors as in return models? Uh, so, uh, you know, we can look at these return patterns in security prices, uh, but they are not always uh, easy to translate into a profitable strategy. So let's say, you know, I conceived of a factor, I looked at, you know, the uh, cross-section of returns uh, based on this particular characteristic, and I identified that, uh, you know, they, uh, in, in this particular setting, you know, if I uh, form a, a portfolio this particular way, uh, looking at that particular factor, you know, I get good returns. So when, uh, do we expect such uh, results to be uh, to translate into a profitable strategy? So uh, there are a lot of tests that people need to make, and uh, so if you open the you know the Journal of Finance, you know there are a ton of uh, these types of studies, and uh, you can see the kinds of the tests that they do, and you know the practitioners also need to do uh, a lot of these uh, kinds of tests and. Uh, so the, the first sort of the most obvious uh, test that you need to do is the out of sample testing. So, you know, you try to uh, come up with an idea and then you try to validate uh, that idea by, uh, you know, because the, when you are researching your factor, you're doing maybe some calibration or some fitting, uh, some, you know, parameter selection, things like that. And uh, do these uh, things uh, continue to work out of sample and uh, so that's an important point. Uh, the other uh, thing that you would want to do when you are sort of building a factor and trying to figure out whether it's going to be profitable in the future is to make sure that it's robust. And, uh, and when we say robust, uh, we look at it in multiple dimensions. One of them is uh, the different time periods. Uh, so does this, uh, like you, if you have done a study of, uh, markets, let's say, or if you built a strategy, if you built a factor that uh, worked from uh, 2010 through 2017, uh, you know, th that's a period where the, uh, the equity markets at least were fairly uh, low volatility, uh, you, you know, in this sort of uh, bullish run, you know, continuously increasing, uh, no sort of serious uh, uh, market corrections in that period, 
so you may see uh, that your uh, factor is working in that period, but then if you start uh, looking at periods that involve, uh, you know, uh, the periods when the, the markets are dropping and maybe the factor stops working. So that uh, is not necessarily a good situation where uh, you would have confidence of the, the factor working in the future. So you would want to make sure that the, the factor works in uh, different time periods. Uh, another sort of obvious uh, test that we, we can do is, uh, well, okay, we built this factor using uh, uh, US market data. Does it work in Japan or the UK or uh, Europe or you know, other markets or in emerging markets? Uh, or we may have built it for, uh, you know, using data for, let's say, large cap stocks and does it work for uh, small cap stocks as well. So these are the kinds of uh, things that you can uh, test. And if you only see that it works in some markets and not others, uh, that again becomes a little bit of a red flag that you need to evaluate. You know, is uh, perhaps there is a reason for that, you know, maybe it works only in the U.S. because, you know, this is a factor that uh, is reflective of some uh, particular U.S. tax rule that is not, you know, in, the, in other countries, something like that. You know, maybe there's an economic interpretation for why it works someplace and not, not in others. But uh, unless you have uh, that, those kinds of uh, interpretations or explanations, you know, uh, having something that's working very narrowly is not a good sort of sign for its uh, sort of future predictability. Um, and then another test is to, uh, you know, apply it to different asset classes. Maybe you, you test it with equities, you know, it does this idea also extend to, uh, to fixed income or to, uh, to FX. Uh, so you, this is another test. Uh, implementability is, is an important consideration for uh, building factors as well. So. Uh, you may uh, find a factor that works extremely well, but only uh, in micro cap stocks. So in that sense, uh, so if you have a situation like that, that uh, would indicate that, well, if you try to scale that strategy up, you know, you will not be able to necessarily, um, you know, imp implement it at, at scale because, you know, micro cap stocks, you can only uh, trade it uh, so much. Uh, there are some, uh, I think, questions that I am seeing. I don't know. Uh, Shreem, can I ask you to sort of uh, stop me and ask questions uh, if um, they are coming so how through? The... We, um, can we hold on uh, till the end of the presentation, uh, Reha, and then when we do the fireside chat, we can you know take a look at these questions and then uh, answer them one at a time. Okay, that that makes sense. Uh, so I, I hope, you know, the, the part, yeah, I'm participants don't Thank mind you. that. All right. Um, okay. um, and uh, related to this interpret in implementability uh, issue is the, the turnover and the trading cost. So if a factor requires excessive turnover and, you know, excessive trading costs, uh, maybe it works in, in a sort of gross of cost sense, but not you know, net of cost sense. So, so that's again an important consideration. So, and uh, it also becomes an important uh, consideration when you're comparing multiple factors. So, you know, uh, 
your you have two researchers in your team they both come up with their own factors they bring them to you you know one seems to work uh, a lot better uh, than the other one sort of gross of course but then once you uh, start looking into the details and uh, the one that works better actually has twice as much turnover and you know if you net uh, the factor of the, the trading cost, then it's not as effective. You know, they, these are the kinds of things that you would need to uh, be fairly careful about when you're building these factors and testing them. Another consideration, obviously, is also, you know, well, uh, is this really a new factor? Is this something that exists uh, already in my model? You know, what's the correlation of this factor with the existing factors in my model? Uh, so these are all uh, important things that, that we need to take into account when we are testing a factor. And uh, I'll sort of uh, wrap up this part of the, the talk uh, by looking at a sort of a factor example. And this is a fairly well-known uh, example. So the momentum factor is, you know, open any uh, sort of quantitative investing uh, book, you know, there's going to be a discussion on momentum. So this is the uh, the tendency of investments to exhibit sort of uh, persistent uh, returns uh, uh, to, in, in relation to uh, other stocks uh, for some period of time. Uh, and this is some, this, uh, you know, momentum is uh, documented in every asset class in, in every market, I think, uh, uh, you know, the, my uh, uh, former colleagues at AQR published a, a paper called uh, Momentum and Value Everywhere. I, I, I don't remember the exact title, but, you know, something uh, to that nature. So they, they documented, you know, momentum and value uh, as uh, sort of persistent factors in uh, different asset classes and different markets. Uh, in equity markets, momentum is about the relative performance among stocks, so not, not about market trends. So what this means is that, you know, we can talk about momentum uh, as, uh, so like in, an, in a market that's uh, rallying, uh, if uh, some set of uh, stocks are going uh, up higher than the other ones, uh, those are the ones that have the, the higher momentum. Uh, and uh, the ones, even though they may be also increasing, if they are going slower, uh, they're going up slower than the rest, they have a, a, a smaller momentum. So uh, that, that's the, the relative uh, measurement that, that's important. Uh, and uh, we can have a momentum strategies working both in up and down markets. And they tend to work in sort of shorter horizons, uh, you know, of the three to 12 months, you know, the, a lot of the studies that document momentum look at that type of uh, time horizon. And uh, so how do you build the momentum factor? And a very simple sort of recipe would be something like this. We look at a measure of past returns. Uh, a typical measure is like the returns over the last 12 months, uh, but excluding the, the past month, uh, which sort of is usually done to uh, negate uh, the reversal effects. And then uh, after we calculated this uh, measure of past returns, we rank our assets in our universe according to this measure, and then we assign weights to them uh, based on the strengths. Uh, so we overweight the ones that are highly ranked and we underweight the ones that are uh, ranked at the bottom and then that gives you a, a portfolio of weights uh, and uh, that becomes your uh, momentum portfolio and then you uh, 
uh, update your rankings and positions regularly by trading into these weights that you're generating. So very, very, very simple strategy. And, uh, and although, you know, I oversimplified that this is not really that different from a lot of the uh, versions of momentum that you will see, you know, in actual uh, practice. And uh, with factor investing, with different factors, you know, a uh, lot of the, the important uh, considerations come from sort of uh, understanding why and when they work. And so, uh, you know, again, uh, I, I talked about all the different tests that you can do. Uh, in addition to those tests, I think it's important to have an economic interpretation of why this uh, factor is uh, working. So if you have done a back test and if you have generated, you know, a successful looking factor, if you can explain why it's doing that, uh, that's always important. That adds another dimension to uh, whether you can expect that, uh, you know, return that factor to uh, sort of persistently generate those returns. Uh, one of them uh, is the, this risk premium uh, story. In the, in the case of momentum, you know, people looked at uh, momentum as a uh, sort of a, a risk premium uh, type of factor, uh, but uh, the likely answer is no, but you know, it's, uh, like it's not universally agreed on. Uh, there are a lot of behavioral explanations. I mean, if you uh, look for you know, just Google, uh, why does momentum work? I mean, you will see a ton of papers on this topic as well, and, uh, and, and many of them look into these different behavioral explanations. Uh, some of them will uh, look into, for example, as underreaction to news. So people hear news and then uh, they do not immediately respond to that. It takes some time uh, for people to catch on and, uh, and this generates uh, momentum. So, you know, returns start uh, based on uh, the news start appearing, but then they continue for a while as uh, other people react to it. Uh, there's also sometimes the delayed overreaction type of explanation for momentum, uh, or sometimes what people call the bandwagon effect. So, you know, people see everybody's buying uh, Facebook, so they feel that they need to buy it too, and then that adds to the momentum of Facebook. Uh, and these two bullets, uh, although they seem a little contradictory, they are not uh, because they operate on different time horizons. Uh, another sort of consideration or explanation for uh, momentum is the disposition effect. Again, this uh, uh, is the, uh, the tendency of people to, uh, like when they are selling securities, they tend to sell the ones that gained and hold on to the ones that, that lost. So this creates a locking of the... Uh, the gains prematurely and uh, holding out to the, the losses for too long. So th these are all different kinds of explanations. So when you come up with your own factors, you know, uh, and you figure that, well, okay, I did these tests and this is what the data shows, uh, you also need to be able to sort of, or you will want to look into why, uh, for example, that particular uh, factor is working. So uh, typically, you know, the, the process should be, you start with an economic, uh, reasoning, so like an economic theory. So I think the, there is this kind of a logic that creates this kind of uh, behavior or this kind of uh, premia, and then start testing that rather than going the other way and looking at data and then trying to come up with an economic interpretation for that.
I think I'm spending way too much time on this, so let me just move on to the multi-period models and I'll, I'll go through this uh, quicker um, and maybe uh, then we'll uh, switch to the, uh, uh, the, the Q&A and the fireside chat. Uh, so the, in quantitative portfolio construction, uh, we try to sort of uh, find the optimal trade-off uh, among three competing concerns. Uh, the, this is the return maximization, risk minimization, and then the T-cost management, you know, the minimizing the trading costs. And in a lot of the sort of the academic uh, approaches, you know, this T-cost part, the trading cost part is uh, uh, underemphasized or swept under the rug, uh, but it's a, it's a very important consideration in, uh, you know, uh, practical asset management. Uh, and uh, that's sort of the, the reason why sort of multi-period models are important. Um, there are also constraints that we need to worry about. Uh, trading costs reflect, you know, multiple things. So there are obviously some processing costs, you know, the commissions and taxes you need to pay. There is the bid ask spread that you need to take into account. And then there are the market impact costs. And the market impact costs uh, are, uh, uh, they, they come from the fact that when you are trading, uh, let's say you want to buy something and there is a, a, a current uh, quote depth. Yeah, so people uh, who uh, are offering that security and who are people who want to buy that security. Uh, and they are matched, you know, at that uh, at a particular price point. Uh, but let's say if there are more people who want to buy than who want to sell, uh, that uh, price point is not going to hold anymore. You know, you need to attract more sellers uh, to the market, so that it requires uh, the the buyers uh, to increase their bids, uh, and they end up buying the security at a higher price than the current price. So that uh, process, you know, the the way that uh, changes the prices is called the market impact. And uh, so, yeah. and with every trade, we are, uh, you know, changing the market and we cannot really calculate the market impact prior to the trade. So this is not really an observable uh, cost. Uh, it's between the, like the transaction price and the, what the price would have been had there not been a transaction. Uh, we cannot really observe or measure it, but we can, you know, build models of it and then try to take that into account. Um, but they are hard to estimate. Uh, let me just skip through these things. So this is a, a like a graphical representation of a, a transaction cost function. Uh, so there is a, you know, at even, uh, uh, you know, if, as you start sort of trading more and more a higher percentage of the, the daily volume uh, because you are demanding more and more uh, uh, of the security, you know, that, then, that's, then it's available, uh, the impact is going to grow. So the, you know, the more you want to trade, the more you are going to move the market price. And that's going to be a temporary change in the price uh, and it's going to revert. Uh, so you are going to basically lose that uh, incremental cost or, uh, and that's why we think of that market impact as a cost. And uh, typical models of the market impact is, uh, is a sublinear uh, function in terms of the, uh, the unit cost. But then you start thinking about total cost of the trading, this becomes a super linear function. Um, now, 
why are multi-period models important? So if you were to forget about uh, trading costs, uh, there, there is no advantage to uh, considering multiple periods when you uh, build a portfolio. You can always do it one step at a time. Uh, but if you are uh, thinking about uh, managing a portfolio and also um, you know, managing your tra trading costs carefully, uh, these single period models are not uh, complete or they have disadvantages. And this very simple scenario uh, and an extreme scenario is uh, we have, a let's say, a portfolio of two stocks that we want to invest in for the next several periods. And uh, let's say we have exact same risk and transaction cost estimates for these two stocks, but uh, let's say the first one is going to overperform slightly in odd numbered periods, and the second one is going to overperform slightly in even numbered periods. Uh, starting from a, let's say, a cash only uh, portfolio, and if you have low risk aversion, uh, our optimal solution for period one would be uh, to invest everything in stock one, right? So if, I mean, if you have a higher risk aversion, then you know some mixing is going to make more sense. But in this sort of extreme scenario, I'm sort of ignoring risk aversion, so the risk that doesn't come into the picture, and we are sort of making a naive decision just based on the the higher expected return for stock one in period one, and then we come to the second period. Uh, if we did not have any uh, aversion to transaction costs. If we ignored it completely, we would switch completely to the se second stock with 100% turnover in the portfolio. If we had a very high aversion to the uh, trading cost, then we would not trade at all and hold the suboptimal stock one. So in this scenario, as you know, I, I mean, I agree this is sort of a very extreme and simplistic case, but uh, you, you can start to see that if you do not take uh, transaction costs into account, or if you take them into account in a uh, in a naive way, you end up with these uh, suboptimal situations. And only if you start thinking about this multi-period model uh, and the future transaction costs, you can discover the stable optimal allocation of 50-50, basically in in each stock uh, going forward. Um, so uh, multi-period models take uh, these things into account and try to estimate the future costs uh, and uh, try to manage the turnover in the portfolio uh, accordingly. And um, let me skip these. Um, you know, sort of the, the important thing here is not only sort of considering the, uh, the costs in the future periods, but also trying to come up with a model or how the return model will evolve in future periods. So this is related to understanding the signals and going back to the sort of the factor models uh, story, uh, you know, the, the expected returns, we, let's say we uh, computed them as a composite of different factors. Uh, and we may have different types of factors in that model, some that move uh, slowly and some move much faster. And uh, the expected return of the portfolio uh, at a rebalance uh, point is going to uh, be relevant only for a short period and it will become inaccurate depending on how you know, quickly your information is, is decaying. Uh, so between rebalances, our portfolio is becoming uh, you know, suboptimal 
uh, and then we need to keep rebalancing it to make it optimal. Uh, and that point, this multi-period model becomes important. So while maybe uh, you know, some components of my returns are relevant for longer periods, so I can afford to trade them at a more, uh, at a slower pace, and the other components of my portfolio uh, uh, decay very quickly, so then I need to trade them at a much uh, faster pace. So this, these are the, the dynamics that need to come into the picture for building these multi-period uh, multi models. Uh, so a combination of you know, taking uh, trading, future trading costs into account, as well as the, uh, the decay pattern of the returns into account uh, for building these models. Uh, and I'll finish with this sort of uh, slide that can show you a sample situation uh, where uh, let's say you have a factor uh, model that's decaying and, uh, and uh, looking at uh, two different scenarios of uh, rebalances. One is rebalancing every week. The other one is rebalancing uh, every three weeks. So what's happening here is that the blue line is the, you know, the rebalance every three weeks situation. So, uh, so at, the, at the beginning of each uh, like rebalance cycle, uh, you will do it sort of a big trade, uh, you improve your expected return from, let's say in, the, in this uh, simplistic chart from 6% to 12%. Uh, but after a week, some of that is already decayed and you're down to nine and then it goes down to seven and uh, so forth. Uh, so uh, in contrast, if you are rebalancing weekly, maybe you can uh, do smaller trades, you know, you will again experience these uh, information decay in between rebalances, but maybe the average level of that orange line is higher than the average level of the, the blue line. So uh, there are these interesting uh, concepts related to multi-period models that you need to start thinking into account. Uh, you know, what, how quickly should I trade? You know, how, uh, how uh, often should I rebalance? Uh, and these are all related to building good models of uh, information decay, trading costs, and combining them in a meaningful way. So let me stop here and uh, hand this over to, uh, to Sri. Thank you so much, Red. So okay. I uh, am effectively using all the possible backgrounds of Zoom. So we are officially in a fireside chat now. I hope all you right. can see the fireside. Um, <laughs> So I wish we had some more time. Uh, you know, we have another 10 minutes. So I'm gonna have, you know, a couple of questions just because, you know, we, are, uh, we have a lot of learners in the room. And then I'm gonna take a couple of questions, technical questions. We have a lot of questions. I can uh, email them to you and, you know, at your leisure, if you wanna kind of, you know, do a quick note, that's fine. Uh, but we do have a lot of questions. So uh, the first question I have for you is, uh, I didn't hear the term machine learning in your presentation. Uh, so, what are your thoughts on machine learning, neural networks, synthetic data generation, all the all the buzz which is out there? So, what's your uh, thought on it, and uh, how much of it is in practice at your uh, organizations? If you're at liberty to talk about it. Um, so, uh, I mean, I almost on purpose avoided you know talking about different ways of building uh, factors. Uh, um, so I just wanted to, you know, give maybe more sort of principles rather than, as, uh, you know, particular uh, strategies for building factors. Uh, uh, 
but uh, machine learning is definitely one of the uh, the approaches people use for uh, coming up with factors. Um, and uh, so, uh, in factor investing, you know, when you're trying to find an idea that's going to work, uh, you know, and you have a you know reasonably large data set, uh, I think uh, machine learning definitely can be one of the useful tools. Uh, to try to extract information from that data set to try to do captures, you know, the, the patterns that may not be obvious to the, uh, let's say, uh, you know, just simple tinkering. Um, mm -hmm. And now, uh, you know, I uh, raised a lot of uh, questions about like, uh, or not questions, but a lot of tests that you need to do to uh, verify that the, the, uh, the factors are going to continue to work in the future. Uh, and that, that's especially true for uh, machine learning generated factors uh, because they uh, tend to have less of a, you know, a, or they, they often have a harder sort of economic interpretation than uh, some of the other factors that you know are common in the in the marketplace now but machine learning is definitely uh, one of the areas that you know my organization included uh, that people are focusing on for generating factors another uh, i think important use of the machine learning tools is uh, uh, for capturing sort of nonlinear relationships between different mm -hmm. factors um, so sometimes, you know, you may have a factor uh, like the, the multiple factor models that I uh, showed uh, were, you know, linear combinations of different factors, right? Uh, but you may actually find that uh, 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 maybe a tree structure, you know, that's going through the, the different factors is more effective than a linear combination. Um, so these kinds of uh, discoveries uh, are being made uh, using machine learning techniques. Uh, so there, there, there is that uh, second dimension, not only for you know, factor discovery, but also you know, factor combination or you know, turning them into a, uh, sort of an aggregate model. Uh, these are the, the areas where I think machine learning has a lot of promise. Cool. Uh, the second question I had is regarding the bandwagon effect you mentioned. How much of it is the Robin Hood effect? Uh, and uh, how much of it is, you know, just institutions kind of a thing? So would you be able to comment on it? Uh, I mean, I think uh, Robin Hood is a relatively recent uh, phenomenon in terms of like actually impacting uh, the, the market prices. Uh, and I think with I mean, I'm sure, you know, very soon we will start seeing data that's documenting that effect. Uh, but uh, historically, I don't think uh, that was uh, such a prominent effect. Uh, I think uh, some of it does come from uh, retail investors, uh, you know, the bandwagon effect, uh, especially, you know, I think a lot of these um, behavioral explanations make a lot more uh, Sort of intuitive sense if you start thinking about uh, uh, the retail investors uh, compared to let's say uh, uh, institutional investors uh, uh, but i i don't want to uh, put too much emphasis on uh, on robin hood uh, when you know its impact has been so new okay cool so i'll um, switch to a couple of questions we have had in here it's difficult to choose um 
So uh, maybe next time we will have people send us questions beforehand so that we know what kinds of questions and we can aggravate them and also look in some latent dimensions and focus on those latent dimensions rather than doing dimension reduction on the fly on the sure. question. Uh, so uh, well, one question, actually, this is one of my questions too. In backtesting, do you prefer historical backtests or simulations? What circumstances do you prefer one over the other? And I want to throw in a little bit of color too. In the course we did, um, you know, in the last quarter, and we're going to be doing this quarter too. Uh, we have a component on synthetic data generation and looking at potential use of synthetic data generation, the synthetic data to augment simulations and scenarios. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Um, I typically, uh, at least on the equity investing side, uh, rely on. Uh, and backed as historical simulations. Uh, but I also, uh, um, one sort of important reason there is that uh, historically it hasn't been very easy to generate uh, synthetic data that covers history that's really uh, good at capturing the different uh, uh, interconnections between, let's say, the different factors you are trying to model mm -hmm. uh, and things like that. Now, uh, in my previous work, you know, when I was a risk manager, uh, so I used to think a lot about sort of the what if type of scenario. So mm -hmm. looking at, you know, worst possible cases, uh, things like that. And uh, in, in those situations, uh, you know, I recognize that uh, looking at historical data is not uh, sufficient. Uh, and so we did do a lot of testing based on uh, uh, synthetic assumptions. So, and some of these were sort of very basic, you know, what if the markets were to move 5%, uh, 10%, and, you know, you can look at the equity markets moving one way, the uh, credit markets moving the other way, and the interest rates moving some other way. So you, you try to capture those kinds of scenarios. So, uh, and, uh, but again, uh, in those uh, settings, uh, you are missing a lot of the, um, you know, the important in interconnections if you are not uh, modeling them, uh, you know, in a correlated way. Uh, if you are not taking into account, you know, autocorrelations, if you are not taking into account uh, cross-asset or cross-security correlations, uh, when you're generating these uh, scenarios, uh, you have an incomplete picture of, you know, what may go wrong or what may go mm -hmm. right. Uh, uh, but yeah, I, I think from a risk management perspective, you obviously need uh, both sets uh, from uh, like equity uh, strategies. Uh, I mean, I think uh, that the, they both are uh, um, important, but uh, I, I tend to focus more on uh, backtests, historical backtests. Okay, so it's gonna be really hard to choose one more question, but I'll choose one. Uh, so traditional low wall portfolios haven't worked well this year. Any thoughts on construction heuristics, especially for high wicks, spiky wicks regimes? Uh, so I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll pass on that question. <laughs> uh -huh. Okay. So, yeah, I, I don't have any, any sort of particular insight in that, in that topic, so. Yeah. Okay. Um, so another question, which is probably topical um, is, you know, how many factors are good enough, especially with all the alternative data uh, and alternative vendors providing factors. How many are good enough? Is five factor uh, from a French? Um, no, I think, uh, well, I'm, okay. So I, I think the, the more, the, the better in general. Uh, 
uh, th there are a couple of things I guess I need to add to that. One is, uh, you know, the factors uh, do not stay effective uh, for extended periods. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, over time, say, you know, some factors will lose their effectiveness, maybe because other people are using it, you know, because they become well known and the juice is gone. Uh, and also, you know, new factors are coming. Uh, um, so uh, I, I think uh, in terms of building a successful return model, uh, the more diversity you can have, uh, the better. Uh, and uh, th that's not only because, uh, you know, uh, of the purpose of like, uh, cross-sectional diversification, but also uh, for, you know, the different factors will be sensitive to uh, different maybe macroeconomic environments. And uh, so one of the uh, really fascinating uh, articles that I've seen just last week was from the, um, uh, from Joe Mesrick, you know, he's a well-known mm -hmm. uh, quantitative researcher and uh, he was talking about uh, the big changes in the uh, the factor investing world and how uh, the uh, the very low interest rate regimes have fundamentally altered uh, the picture mm -hmm. for the the well-known factors so how uh, you know they have like value has been for example uh, you know underperforming for an extended period of time and uh, the previous question that you were, uh, asked about the low wall portfolios i mean they, they are going through this uh, uh, significant sort of underperformance period, and uh, and they are reflective of different, uh, um, I think, sensitivities to different market regimes. And the more sort of uh, factors you can have in your portfolio uh, of you know in your multi-factor model, the sort of the more of a chance you will have that some of them at least will continue to work even in changing uh, market environment. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you. Reha. I think we are at one o'clock. I know you had a hard stop at one o'clock. It was an absolute pleasure uh, having you and I uh, look forward to the conversation online. And uh, by the way, uh, we are going to be giving away a copy of your book to one of the attendees of today's uh, webinar. Nice. Um, so uh, what we'll do is we will send out a survey and uh, we will have a question if you have been paying attention to Reha's lecture. And All right. <laughs> will be pulled from the lecture. So if you answer the question correctly, we will take that and then we will run through our random number generator, which is very effective. It's not a pseudo random number generator. It's a real random number generator. And we'll pick a winner and we will ship you the book. Um, so it's going to be a physical book, not, a, not an electronic book. So please uh, you know, uh, keep an eye on your email about the survey. And uh, every week we're going to have uh, a speaker with uh, an interesting topic for the next eight to 10 weeks, as we already have uh, the pipeline of speakers and we're going to be sending out announcements for the speakers. Uh, and if you are interested in um, learning more about the, um, so let me just uh, um, take back the, uh, would you mind passing the control back to Mireha for a second? I want to show one more link. Uh... How do I do that? Let me see. Um, I think there should be an option. Uh, so if you click on the top right of mine thing and then, uh,
Sorry, I'm. Uh... I'm also trying to figure out, but uh, anyways, it doesn't uh, seem like it's allowing me. Uh, so you'll have a link to uh, the courses we are going to be offering in the summer. The course, the summer. Uh, school is starting tomorrow. We have eight weeks of classes, primarily focused on machine learning and it's uh, an association with finance. And we have a lot of case studies, some aspects of natural language processing, some neural networks, some synthetic data generation and a bunch of different case studies. Uh, we also have a model risk management class, which we are offering in partnership with Premier. Uh, that again is a you know, seven week class and the guided case study on how to do model validation, especially for machine learning models. So I hope you leverage those opportunities and continue your learning and uh, we will stay in touch. Thank you so much for today's attendance and uh, we'll see you hopefully in the next week. Thank you. All right, bye. Thanks again, Rehan. Thank you for listening to the first episode of the Q podcast. We hope you liked it. If you liked it, subscribe to the Q podcast at anchor.fm slash podcast. Join us again next week for the next episode of Q podcast.